This week on One Body Stewarding God's Creation, historian Linda McCaffrey talks about her book, I'm Praying for You, the story of Bill and Joe Brenner on April 9, 1942. 76,000 prisoners of war were forced by the Japanese military to march 66 miles. They were then put in unsanitary cramped boxcars traveling further north to Capus in the Philippines. From there, they were forced to march an additional seven miles. The march took 10 days, and only half the prisoners survived. Many later died in the camp. Linda tells the story of one who survived and what it was like for his wife who didn't know if he was dead or alive. Linda is being interviewed by Divine Mercy Radio's on-air host, George Toman. And so now I have Linda McCaffrey here in studio with us. Linda is, has been a history professor at Barton County Community College for 36 years. She wrote a book called I'm Praying Hard for You, the story of Dr. Bill and Joe Brenner and how they dealt with the Bataan Death March and three and a half years of prison camps during World War II. Some people refer to it as, as Bataan Death March, but in the Tagalog, again, my mother's mother tongue, Bataan is more appropriate there. So, Linda, it is great to have you on here. Well, thank you. Tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to love history, because 36 years there at the Community College Teaching History, that's a good amount of time. And so, yes, tell us. Yes, it is. And I uh, would like to tell you that my father, who was in the Liberation Army of the Philippines, also pronounces it Bataan. Bataan, wonderful, yeah. yes. And so, uh, and I've said that a couple times to say the, the Bataan death march, and people go, huh? So I, yeah. I haven't heard that for so long. <laughs> and that does bring me to my father and my family. Uh, we we had a saying that Dad never met a museum uh, or historic site he didn't love. So we I grew up in Colorado, okay. in the mountains of Colorado. Wonderful. And everywhere we went, we stopped for every historic marker. And then usually as we traveled, uh, and I have one brother in a little Volkswagen, we would my mom would read to us about what we were going to see and all the area that we were in, that this used to be part of Mexico, before that Spain. So every, that was kind of our, our, our family time, was mom reading to us as we're headed for some historic somewhere. And, and my favorite was we went to see Ben's Fort. And I was in uh, junior high and as obnoxious as any person could be. and. At that time, all it was was a melted foundation because William Bent blew it up, and then it was adobe, so it just melted. And I remember getting out of the car and going, oh, Dad, this is really nice. I'm going to go sit in the car and listen to the radio. And he was so upset with me. So that is, and, and history just, it's so easy to teach that many years a subject you love. So that's, that's why I have been a history teacher, will always be a historian. Absolutely. Just out of curiosity for me here, Linda, what are there any eras of history that re that really stick out to you? Or are you just a general, anything that happened previous of today, I'm into? Actually, the era of my specialty is early 20th century, 20th century. World War I, Wonderful. because nothing will ever be the same. But if you teach at a small college, you teach everything from ancient history right up to 2021. <laughs> so... Uh, but I've learned to appreciate a lot of areas that I had no uh, no knowledge in, 
and I did spend uh, six months teaching in China, and that was a really interesting experience because the B-29 bombers that were stationed at Great Bend, Salina, Walker, uh, by Victoria, and Pratt, their forward base was where I was teaching in China. So I spent a lot of time finding people that built those dirt runways, even found a man who, who flew fighter cover. And I do oral histories. And I had an oral history with a man named Virgil Belford, who trained in Great Bend uh, from Belmont, Texas, and ended up marrying a local girl and staying. His B-29 crashed on its way back from one of the first missions to, over Japan, and he was the only survivor. And they crashed into a rice paddy near a little village. And I just wanted to find that and see it. And we did finally find it. And the villagers told told me the other side of how this huge plane flew over their village and then crashed. And as soon as they could get there, he, he was the only survivor. And they, and he didn't tell me this, but one of the things they said is that all night, he was kind of in and out of consciousness calling to the others, not knowing that they, they were all dead. And so that, that added such a dimension of my understanding of history living in a historic place like Chengdu, China. So again, your book, I'm Praying Hard for You, the story of, of Dr. Bill and Joe Brenner. So how did you find out about Bill and Joe Brenner? Well, I was doing oral histories, World War II especially at that time, and I interviewed a man who was a prisoner of war in Germany. His name was Marion Schiedler. And he said, you know, there's a doctor in Larned that was in the Bataan Death March and then a prisoner of the Japanese for three and a half years. And I said, oh, wonderful. And I found his phone number and I called him and he said, absolutely not. Said, okay, that, that's fine. And about a year later, he called me and said, I think I want to do that oral history. His wife came with him and she sat and cried the entire time because she knew bits and pieces, but she did not know the whole story. He never talked about it. His children didn't know anything about uh, his past. And in fact, his daughter went to Consaga University and the registrar came out and said, you're Bill Britter's daughter. We were in prison camp together. And she said to him, well, I think my dad was in the war, but I don't think he was in a prison camp. Uh, and it just, they knew something had happened. And he said, you know, some people drank. And what he did is he worked until he was exhausted and could sleep and keep the nightmares down. So he just decided maybe it's time to talk about this. And we did the oral history, and then we got to be good friends. And one day at coffee, Joe said, you know, I've got some letters. Well, any historian letters are like manna from heaven. <laughs> and I, she said, would you like to look at them? And I said, well, sure. And so she went to the closet and got out a shoebox, and the letters were never opened. And these were the letters that she had wrote to Bill, and she didn't know if he was even dead or alive for 18 months. And she just figured, if I can write letters, he has to be alive somewhere. Well, the Army kept sending the letters back. She'd write more letters. The Army would send the letters back. And, and then, of course, after... Bill went into the Japanese prison camp. Then the letters were just destroyed. Uh, they never, never made it back. And so I said, well, it's okay if I open them. And she said, oh, sure. Both of them thought that was fine. And, and then after I copied all of them, 
I asked Bill, do you want to read these? And he said, no, I don't ever want to read these. So I'm, his children now, of course, have read them. But uh, Bill never, never wanted to read the letters. But one of the letters that was in the box was very tragic because it was written three days before they surrendered. Uh, he doesn't tell her how bad things are, but he basically tells her to go on with her life. And that letter is uh, in the appendix of the book. So because he, he wasn't sure. They knew they were going to have to surrender. They were starved, trapped on the Bataan Peninsula. They'd been on quarter rations, and just before they surrendered, eighth rations. And a lot of the men had, including Bill, had malaria. But he did write, and I don't know how they got those letters out. I think that would be an interesting story in itself. But those letters were sent, and she received a letter about three months after the surrender. Wow, wow. Uh, anyway, one day we were having coffee, and I said, this is really, really an interesting story. Would, do we want to write a book about it? And Joe looked at Bill, and Bill looked at Joe, and then Bill said, yes. He said, because I want people to know that I wasn't the only one who suffered that three and a half years, that she was all alone at outside of San Francisco. He had been based in Hamilton Field before he was sent uh, to the Philippines with not a lot of money, and her family wanted her to come back. Uh, Bill grew up between Bazine and McCracken, come back where it was safer, and she agonized over that decision, and she wrote Bill, what should I do? And finally, she wrote to him, I've decided to stay here because I'm closer to where you are and not knowing where he was or even if he was alive. But she never, never considered that he might not be alive, that he would come back. God would not take him from his family. So and then I'd write a little bit and then I'd send it to Bill and then he would go through it. And there are some things I wanted to leave in the book, but it was his call. And one of those things, he, uh, when they were at Camp Kabatatuan, they, the Japanese divided the prisoners into groups of ten, and they were counted in the morning and counted in the evening. And if one man was missing, they killed the other nine. And so they had to count for every body. And they had what they called the zero ward, and it, mm-hmm. that's where people, where men went to die. There was zero chance they would ever come out of there. And Bill, his orderly was 19 years old. His name was Sergeant Jack Batson. Big, tall, happy-go-lucky guy, blonde hair. And Bill was walking through there and heard his name. And he looked down, and here was his skeleton laying on a mattress covered with vomit, urine, and, and feces, and covered with flies. And Bill said, I am a devout Catholic, and I am a doctor. And I got down on my knees and prayed that Jack would not live one more day. And he said, if you weren't there, you might not understand praying someone would die. And I wanted to leave it in, but it was Bill's call. Uh, and there were, there were a few things that he decided that it was either too gruesome or people might not understand. And so there are a few things missing that... Like I said, he, he went through it and made corrections, and but said that was one of the passages he said, I, I don't want this in the book. So, so let, let's go into Linda here because I'm sure for most of our listening audience, they are familiar that in World War II, we had two major campaigns, one in Europe and one there in the Pacific. But people sometimes forget that in the Pacific campaign, 
uh, we had to leave for a little bit. And then, of course, MacArthur's I shall return, you know, speech, everything. Right. But nonetheless, th that in-between time when we had to leave and then when we came back, this is when um, the Bataan Death March, you know, occurred. So for our listening audience from the historical from the historical perspective, tell us what the Bataan Death March was about. And again, folks, in, in, in Tagalog, in the Filipino native tongue, the, the the peninsula there is Bataan. That's that's how it, it's properly pronounced. So you'll sometimes get some some. Uh, I, I'm not, but you'll get some Filipinos in their native tongue going. I wish they would just say it right in the history. But Bataan's okay. We 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 will make do there. But the point is, we don't want to lose track of the story here. Give us let us know when it took place, how long it was, and other details you'd be willing to share just for our listening audience to know this 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 dark time that that um, our people had to go through and others too. So. And, of course, uh, the Philippines became part of the United States protectorate after the war with Spain. So it had been a Spanish colony, uh, and the American bases there were very understaffed. Well, when, oh, about a year before Pearl Harbor, the government realized that we would probably be at war sooner or later with Germany and Japan. And they started to uh, build up the military. And when Bill was called up, and, and a lot of other doctors uh, were also called up, but he was called up to basic training, and then he, he had done his work at Mary's Help Hospital, a big charity hospital in San Francisco. And that is where he ended up, was at Hamilton Field in San Francisco. And MacArthur, who has actually retired at the time, was called back and employed by the Filipino government, not the American government, to build up the forces. So the very well-trained Filipino scouts, but then they had a, a draft. And Bill said they were like a bunch of high school kids, that the only thing they didn't miss was lunch. <laughs> so when the war does begin, there is a very well-trained core and then a lot of poorly trained Filipinos. On the 27th of November, the alert went out because the United States government had access to the Japanese diplomatic code. And that's when everyone went on full alert. Bill had only been there a month. And he was with the uh, 21st Pursuit Squadron. He was never in a hospital. He was the, the, the uh, medical doctor for that squadron. And these are, of course, P-40s. He came over on the Coolidge with the rest of the squadron and roomed with the man that, that the one that said to his daughter, why? I was in prison camp with your dad. His name is Sammy Gratio. Well, a lot of their planes were either still in the crates, or if they had them on the crates, a lot of them still had cosmoline in the engines. Uh, what I want you to know is that the military in the Philippines was, there was the presence of the Americans, but they did not have the equipment they needed. They did not have the training they needed. And, and so Bill had really been in the Philippines just a little over a month when the war started. And of course, the attack on Pearl Harbor was the seventh, but that it was the eighth in the Philippines. And everyone knew that the Japanese army would attack uh, Singapore, Hong Kong, the Philippines, and the Malayan Peninsula, uh, or Singapore. And ironically, Bill ended up in the prison camp with a lot of the British soldiers that surrendered at Singapore. 
uh, they were, didn't know when. MacArthur did not think that the war would begin until in April or May and not in December. Well, they got the word on the 8th, and General uh, Homa, who was the, uh, the general that led the campaign in Burma, he will eventually be transferred when the Japanese invasion bogs down. There was a plan, and it was called Plan Orange, that if there was an attack, that food, enough food for 35,000 men would be uh, available on the Bataan Peninsula, and if they could hold up there, there should have been a three-month supply until they could be relieved. Well, MacArthur, and I will tell you, I took Bill to several reunions, and MacArthur to the survivors of Botanic Rigador is like a swear word. They had, they had no respect for him whatsoever, especially when they found out that he left them and was awarded a Congressional Medal of Honor for that. Uh, and I think very, one of the most bitter were the nurses, that when MacArthur flew his curtain rods out and left behind 67 uh, military nurses. So anyway, the, there was not the food, and they did evacuate on uh, Christmas Eve. And the last decent meal that Bill will have was he stopped at the church uh, to pray, and the priest asked him if he would like bacon and eggs. And of course, when they were in prison camp, food was everything. Uh, and he said when he talked about what he wanted as soon as he got home was bacon and eggs. Anyway, they did not expect the Philippine army to evacuate with them with their wives and children. And so the rations for 35,000 yeah, men that already, because Mark MacArthur had a lot of them moved, because he felt that they would stop the Japanese on the beaches, which was absolutely impossible. Uh, they evacuated. Christmas Eve, they, they held out until April the 9th. And at the whole, and, and bombarded during that time, they were short on rations, not just short, but critically short on rations. And General King felt that there was no choice. Mm -hmm. And he surrendered the entire garrison, Batang uh, garrison. Now, the orders from MacArthur was that you should fight to the last man. Uh, and I think what is so tragic for both Bataan and then in Manila Harbor is uh, Corregidor, which was a fortress that, and that is where General Wainwright, who uh, was given command after MacArthur left, that, uh, but they should, they should hold out till the convoy got there, the relief column. And I have an oral history with uh, Lonnie Wright, who was at Pearl Harbor when it was attacked, and half of his bomb squad was already in the Philippines. That was the 19th. And they were in the, the convoy that was to relieve the, the Philippines. Well, they stopped that convoy in Fiji, uh, and then the decision was made that there was no way that they could relieve the Bataan garrison. Uh, Eisenhower, who had been in the Philippines with MacArthur, was one of the uh, generals that made that decision. And when it was announced by the Secretary of War at the cabinet meeting, uh, Frances Perkins, who was the first woman in a cabinet, Secretary of Labor, wrote that at first it didn't dawn on her that when the statement was said, there are times when brave men must die. And that's and it, it took her a little bit, and then she went, oh my gosh, they're, they're, they're just going to abandon them with 
But they, they, the convoy probably couldn't have gotten through, even you know at that point in the war, right after Pearl Harbor, and then they diverted that convoy to the Philippines. I mean, to uh, Australia. The sad, I think, the tragic thing is, the higher staff in Washington decided that uh, they would keep the hopes that that convoy was coming so that they would keep fighting. The, and there were two hospitals, and at one of the hospitals, the nurses every evening climbed a little hill up to the last day, searching for the convoy that was going to rescue them. Well, of course, it wasn't coming. It wasn't coming. And, and I think that, that lie, I think, is one of the bitterest things for a lot of the, a lot of the survivors. We need to take a short break right now, but don't change that dial. We'll be right back with more about the Paton Death March with Linda McCaffrey. We're back on One Body Stewarding God's Creation. with historian Linda McCaffrey. George Toman conducts the interview. We are talking about the Bataan Death March. So how did, Linda, how did Bill survive the march and his time in prison? Because you already mentioned, for the listening audience, I want to just highlight a couple things here before getting into this conversation. We already have a lack of food. That has already been depleted because now, in terms of at least the, the, the Filipino force, they brought their families in with it. So any rations that we had that was already kind of minute for the the, um, the people that were there, the, the Americans, et cetera, that's, that's already been depleted and kind of kind of gone in a ration isn't like a, a five course meal folks you know <laughs> you know it's it, it's very it's enough to get you by for for a day but um let's just say again may not be the most high quality food it's just there for you to have and the rations are gone in the philippines as well malaria is a very big deal and so we had we had our people there also suffering from malaria and then again on top of all of that we just started a worldwide conflict and the leader has left the island we do have a replacement in Rainway, but nonetheless, the leader has left the island. And so now we have this this death march, and we have Bill, who's an, who, who is part of it. So how did he survive, Linda? One of the things that kept him going was his faith. But also, he was a farm kid, and he was a depression kid. So he, he didn't expect a lot. He And one of the things that bothered a lot of the men were the smells. But they they held him uh, overnight in an area, and they were not in the first wave, but he was in one of the earlier waves, that there was feces everywhere and there were maggots in it. And a lot of the, just, just a lot of the men couldn't deal with that. But Bill said, gee, smelled, smelled like home. Just, it's just not cow manure, but, uh, and looked at it that way. Uh, he also used a trick, and that was because they had no water. And unfortunately, Bill had a canteen that he was able to hang on to. That in his medical bag and his rosary. And that was about all he had. But uh, and he, he knew that he would have to drink as little water as possible. And then he put a rock in his mouth, uh, a little pebble to suck on, and so that he didn't feel so thirsty. The other thing is Bill was not a big man. 
the Japanese tend to tended to pick on or do horrible things to the big men. And he was not a big man. He uh, also, the group of men that he evacuated with, the 21st Pursuit, really kind of kept him in the middle and protected him as much as they could, uh, just out of respect. So, and then into the prison camp, there um, there was, it's called the Quan, and I may not be pronouncing that right, but these were people that you would team up with that and help each other survive. And he teamed up with a guy that was 6'4", and Bill probably was about 5'5". Five five. Uh, his name was Anderson. He was a doctor also from Del Norte, Colorado. And whatever they had, they shared. They also had a lot of humor that they would sit and, and somebody would be headed for the latrine, which was just a trench, but they would bet. He's not going to make it. Yeah, he was going to make it. Bet you a hundred bucks. And so by the by the time that they were separated, which after they landed in Japan, uh, they figured they owed each other a million dollars. They would also, how many weevils do you have in your rice? And whoever had the most, they called them proteins, in your rice won that day. And they did that. That was a great help was his partner, his Quan partner. Uh, they also practice quackery and they the Japanese had gathered up cough syrup from the pharmacies rice polishings and Lydia Peacom which was uh, to help women get pregnant and the other doctors just looked at it and walked away and so Bill and uh, and Anderson took it back to the compound and they mixed it up in in different colors and then they told the men that this was vitamins. And it was psychological. Yes. Because it had no, no value <laughs> at all. But it gave men hope. Sure. That sure. hope that, you know, it, maybe this is going to help them survive. And Bill said, you just watched people. You watched. And when they gave up, it was like letting go of a rope. And they died. And you, you had to hang on to that rope no matter what. But his faith in God love of his family, uh, I think those two things, and then that, that silly, funny sense of humor that he had till the very end of his life <laughs> was it, funny. In fact, I'll tell you one story that uh-huh. I just love. For a man who never wanted to talk about this, Bill loved book signings, loved to do book signings. And of course, he'd been a physician, Lord, forever, and it seemed inevitable that somebody would come up to him, you know, buy a book and say, Dr. Brenner, do you remember me? You delivered me. And he just looked serious as, all, as can be, and he'd say, and you haven't changed a bit. <laughs> and, and, you know, people would stop, kind of think for a minute and go, you know, oh, 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 he's kidding. <laughs> so, yeah, that was that was, that was was Bill's wonderful, wonderful sense of humor. No, and you, and you just captured it, too. You know, I think of, you know, you know that era is just, is just so dark, but also some of the most courageous acts that we've ever seen humanity make also occurred during this time. You mentioned it here, just faith in God, the personality, just having some humor, utilizing that. What came to mind as you were talking about that that placebo effect of that combination of, of medicines, calling it a vitamins, and, and basically, again, it was that little string of hope, as you alluded to beautifully there. Now let's get into the uniqueness again. This 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 is the story of Dr. Bill and, and Joe Brenner here. So now let's talk a little bit about this. What did Joe know about Bill at the time? Nothing. <laughs> Nothing. No, that's just, yeah, nothing. Uh, nothing. <laughs> you know, that's just, just 
she knew that, of course, Pearl Harbor, everybody knew that. She received a few letters because they were still coming through. She did not get the letter he wrote three days before the surrender. She, the newspapers were full. And one thing I did do for the book is Joe mentions in her letters different things she's read in the newspaper. And so I read all the same newspapers so I could have an idea of what, what she was getting. And the newspapers, the brave battles in the Philippines and pushing back the Japanese, and, uh, and it was 90% propaganda. It really was. But that is what the news that, that she was getting. She also, very interestingly, agreed with the evacuation, uh, relocation of Japanese Americans. And of course, we look back and go, how could they have done that? Well, you look at it through her eyes, and it was the right thing to do. So, but she had, she had no information at all. She did receive his missing in action letter, and that was more toward August, I believe, that, well, yeah, she knew it was missing in action because they knew when the surrenders. That, but beyond that, she did not know anything. And I do want to go back. Uh, on the death march, mm-hmm. it was 100% humidity. A lot of the men, the Japanese, of course, had taken their shoes, any valuables. Yeah, they walked barefoot. I didn't see that. Yeah. And and the last stretch, uh, the march itself was 70 miles. And the Japanese had some assumptions that these men would have water, that they would have enough rations for a few days, and that they would be healthy. And not only malaria, but dysentery, typhoid. So they had a, a myriad of problems. Those assumptions, of course, weren't true. They had to get the, the garrison, the Bataan garrison, cleared out because they needed to attack the island of Corregidor. And they, they assumed the march would take a day, two at the most. Well, uh, the average march was 10, 10 days. And there were artesian wells along the way, but anyone who broke rank to try to get water was killed. So, but Bill watched the men, uh, water buffalo wallow, and the water buffalo defecated in it, and they went over and filled their canteens. And Bill told him, don't, don't do that. It, it's going to kill you. And of course, it did. It did. They marched to San Fernando, and there they were loaded about 100 men per grain car. And the grain car Bill was in was steel. And they shut the vents, and men died packed in there so tight that they couldn't fall over until they stopped. Uh, Some were wood, but he happened to be in the metal one and and hot. It was 90 degrees, you can imagine, with the sun beating down. And if you had to to relieve yourself, you just had to do it. And the way he describes it is when they finally, then they had seven more miles for the train into Camp O'Donnell. And he said, we were a stinking bad-looking bunch. And Bill figured he, w- he weighed 170 pounds, and he figured he went down to 93, 93 pounds. So, and that was just his estimate. Of course, he had no way to weigh himself. But he said, you, you know, you look down and your ribs are all sticking out. And, and, and of course, harder on the bigger men. The, and, and he said the other thing that was really hard for a lot of men was that they smoked. And they basically just cold turkey quit because they yeah. didn't have access. But I think the not knowing of where Bill was or if he was alive for Joe was was very, very difficult. Very. And she won't know for 18 months. So, yeah. Linda, what are some of the themes that Joe had in her letters to 
her husband, Bill? Well, I can, I can, I have an exact quote. I tried to be funny. And they're just filled with everyday things. And of course, their, their little boy, who was a baby when Bill left, was a toddler, and then all the funny things and cute things that he did. And every day just went and did the laundry and went to a wedding shower, and I gave the, the bride five ration coupons. Uh, just and then agonizing over, should she move back to Kansas? Should it actually... Uh, she was from Nebraska, and I. But the family, her family, wanted to move back to Bazine, or between Bazine and McCracken to the farm. Okay. And I do want to tell you, uh, and I think often, and I did. I, of course, I never know, knew her, but Bill's mother had another son that was in a German prisoner war camp. Oh wow! And then another wow. son who was actually in the Pacific, and he flew uh, B-24s. So. I, I can't imagine. And, and the family said that they shed a little room off the kitchen or uh, pantry, and that if she went in there and shut the door, that everybody knew, leave her alone, because she needed to cry. Uh, the difference between her two sons is that Germany had signed the Geneva Convention of the Treatment of Prisoners. Japan had not. Japan. They Well, they signed it, but they never ratified it. Yeah. And so, so that's what the men were told, was that you are not prisoners of war. You are criminals and slave labor, and that is the way you will be treated. And when they got into Camp O'Donnell and they were informed that, Bill said it was comical because this, this commandant was so short that he had to hold his samurai sword up. But what he had to say, of course, was not comical. Not comical. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, but, you know, I, I do. Uh, and, of course, the letters that his family wrote were not saved, unfortunately, mm-hmm. because that would have just added another dimension to the story. And I talked to his brothers and sisters and, and what they remember, but that would have been a wonderful dimension. So please don't throw those letters away. Keep them. <laughs> and they may just seem mundane, but I would love to have letters of people's reaction on 9-11, which would be as important as people's reaction to Pearl Harbor. So, oh, I, I want people to know that Filipinos risked their lives to help the prisoners. Somebody threw a hunk of sugar cane and that they just took a bite and passed it back. And so... But if the person that did that would have been caught, they would have been executed and possibly their entire family. I also want people to know that there was a network run by two women, that, and one of them was Claire Phillips, and she was known as, her code name was High Pockets, because she put stuff in her bra. Uh, she ran a nightclub, and she was filtering information to the guerrillas, including a man from Wichita, who was in the guerrilla group and a man from Claflin. One survived, Lieutenant Ramsey survived, Major Prager did not. And the uh, National Guard building is named for him. And he was caught with a radio and tortured to death uh, at Billabid Prison. But And the other one uh, was Miss Utelsky, and her code name was Miss U. And she was actually an American. Her husband was on Corregidor, and she made up a story that she was a Lithuanian Red Cross worker and came up with this ridiculous accent. But she is the one, I am sure, that was smuggling 
medications into the prison. And what happened, and Joe got a couple of these checks. Bill would, would write what he needed and sulfur drugs and malaria drugs. And a enlisted man would take it out and put it in a culvert. And then uh, and the promise of payment, the, the pharmacist was probably Chinese because that's, that's what Bill figured. Then the medicine would show up. And if he'd have been caught, I don't know if they'd have killed him because he was an officer. But after he left, their doctor continued that, another doctor, and the enlisted man was, was killed, beat to death. When that, that ring, and of course they didn't know how to set up a cell, so that once one was caught, they were all, the movie High Pocket, she is executed, but she actually wasn't. But they did beat a priest to death. That was part of that, that ring of trying to get food and information into, and medicine especially, into the prison. And that was at Kabwata Tawan. I'm glad you bring that up, Linda, too, because one thing that people may not know about Filipino culture and the Filipinos in general is it is a very Catholic country. Um, going particularly to your authorship of the book here, two questions I want to kind of combine into one. What did Bill and Joe think about your finished books? You mentioned earlier, Bill, there's a couple lines that you had to extract because of Bill's request, and you said, again, that was completely fine. So what did they think of your book? And then what was most difficult about doing your research on a text like this? Well, Joe uh, had passed away. So she she never, never had read the book, or she was gone with the book signings. But I know that she would have been very, very pleased. Uh, and, of course, Bill gives all the credit for his recovery to her, that she was so understanding. Because a lot of men who were married divorced. Because the man who left wasn't the man who came back. And of course, Bill was thrilled. And like I said, for a man who never wanted to talk about it, boy, did he love book signings. <laughs> so, and when we charged for the book, he, he came up with twenty two fifty. You know, so we always had to have change, you know, and, he, and it just... You know, and to him, that was funny. That was kind of his sense yeah, of humor. Yeah, exactly. And uh, But while writing the book, I did uh, go through treatment for breast cancer. And so that kind of slowed, slowed the whole thing down. The other thing is the next person that tells me everything is on the Internet, I think I'm going to slap them. Because <laughs> a too. lot of this... I'm with you. <laughs> a lot of this, I, I mean, I had to interlibrary loan. I had to contact uh, people that knew Bill. And, you know, I even had a book that was interlibrary loan from New Zealand because the the camp that he was in when, when he in, uh, reached Japan were mostly New Zealand, Australia, and England. And I, I had some really wonderful contacts to remember him. And I did have um, a lady contact me, our son, because his father died in the camp where Bill would have been the physician. And she wanted to talk to him because she never knew her father. And, and Bill said, I can't. He said, I, I have, there's one face I'll, I can't forget, and that is the nightmares that come back about once a week. Uh, and he said, if I ever let myself see the faces of all the men I saw die, I'll go crazy. Uh, there also, because it is, there are parts of it that are very, very depressing. And so there were times I just had to put it up. And if you've ever read The Rape of Nanking by Iris Chang... Ooh. And I remember an interview with her that that she was so depressed writing that book, and it's probably been four or five years that she committed suicide. She was only 34 years old. But you know, there's some things that once you see them, you can't unsee them, and some things that you know you can't unknow. So I'm very 
I'm glad. And my goal, my only real goal, was to get it done before I lost Bill. And and he died at 98. So we we got it done. Yes, yes. We privately published it because I thought I I could go through the whole, especially the university presses. But what if that'll take time, and we don't have time. And so we published it ourselves. And what we wanted to do with our earnings was to to commission a statue of bronze of a man returning from war and a woman and a child running toward him. Well, we we didn't make that much money. So what? Uh, and Bill died very very suddenly. So I talked to his, his family, and we bought a bench in his name at the uh, Veterans Park in Larned, and then a plaque for every one of his brothers and sons who were in the military. And then the rest I donated. What's your favorite part, and what makes you most proud of this book? Well, I think the beginning chapters where growing up, and I didn't have a lot of information from Joe's family, so I, I, I know that she maybe didn't have a real, real happy childhood, but of course, Bill's, they were a big, loving family, and just the joy that, that he had growing up, and with a lot of hard work, but family and faith, uh, and fondly remembers First Communion. And, and, and what I had to do in those first part of the book was get the reader to know them and like them. And of course, the, the, the gathering storm of the war that would affect their lives so dramatically, they had no control. Yeah over it. And of course, the, the proudest thing is that I did get the book done before Bill died. And getting to know his family, it, that was probably my favorite part. But just getting it done and and handing the, the first book off the press, handing it to Bill and saying, it's done. And, and he just, he, he picked it up and, and he just started looking at it and he came to the picture of his family. Take it, oh, 1920 something, you know, the coveralls, the typical farm <laughs> family. Uh, and, and he came to that and he said, Oh, I wish they were all here. I wish they were all here to read it. That, I think, uh, you know, every time I, I look at the picture of Bill and Joe, I just think, Thank you, God, for helping me get this done. Uh, there were times that I would, I would have liked to have just said, Oh, geez, I'm just going to put that away and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something else. And, and then I, I just always felt like there was somebody standing behind me going, no, you know, Tell and, yeah. and it, it was strange that sometimes when I didn't really feel like working on it, that I would come across something and go, oh, and then track down that source so that I could add it into the book. And it was almost like just somebody there going, keep it up, you know, don't, don't put it off. So, and, uh, but handing Bill this book and having putting it in his hands you know and, and that that is a memory that i will always treasure always linda how can uh, how can someone purchase your this book if they wanted to uh, get a hold of it and, and take a read okay it's uh my new email because i'm retiring from the college this year and it's goldie lab all one okay gold is it gold g-o-l-d-i-e goldie was my Goldie Lab, okay? 1970. Yep. So, yep. At, at gmail.com. Yep. So, again, folks, um, Goldie Lab, G O L D I E L A B 1970 at gmail.com. Goldie Lab 1970 at gmail.com. That will lead you to the email. 
for Linda McCaffrey to be able to reach out and 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 purchase this book if you so desire. Linda, we are out of time. I wish you had some more, but this was a very uh, very awesome interview for me. So again, thank you for spending your time to be here. Thanks, Linda. What an amazing story. And thank you, our listeners, for tuning in to this week's One Body Stewarding God's Creation. Folks, heaven is unseen, and so are these airwaves. But if you want to support these airwaves and save souls for heaven, go to dvmercy.com and click on Donate, or use the address at the bottom of the page to send in a check. Thank you. You're listening to Divine Mercy Radio. If today you hear His voice, harden not your hearts. One body.